A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is a dues-paying member of the Agora Podcast Network, local 6.62607. Accept no substitutes, and don't listen to scabs. This month, I'm happy to plug longtime friend of the show, Steve Guerra. Steve has two shows, Beyond the Big Screen and the History of the Papacy podcast. I have been plugging the former a lot recently, so today let's talk about the history of the papacy. In this show, Steve takes a really deep dive into the history of the institution of the papacy. Like, a really deep dive. Like, talking about iconoclasts and stuff. Like, me levels of deep. While others may address the issue from a theological level, Steve presents much more of an institutional history, and as such the show is a really good complement to mine. I really encourage you to check it out, along with all his shows, at a AtoZHistoryPage.com. And don't forget to also check out the Agora Podcast Network, at agorapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia is brought to you by you guys and my appending move. The support this show receives from advertisers is as nothing, compared to the support we get from our patrons and donors, and oh boy, have you guys really stepped up since I posted that minisode. Closing costs remain a looming factor, folks, so please keep it coming. But seriously, after I posted that plea for help, my email just kind of exploded. I'm not yet sure at time of recording whether it was enough to cross the finish line, but it has made a big, big difference. And at the very least, it made me feel better about my work, you all, and humanity in general. So, okay, here we go. The patrons and donors for this month, worthy of honor and praise, are... Longtime friend of the show and fellow podcaster Steve Guerra has donated, and as such, Steve shall be known henceforward as His Holiness Pope Steve, finder of the sour cream and onion potato chip of St. Joe. Patron Chris has seen fit to donate to the cause, and so he shall be known from henceforth as Dr. Chris, the faintly iridescent. Andrea, too, has joined our serried ranks, and so shall be known henceforward as Abbas Andrea, the Devaricator. Patron Rosa, of several serfs, has chosen to up her pledge, and shall therefore be given additional honors and offices. She shall now be known as Rosa of several serfs, shield of the royal root cellar. Patron Anna has not only seen fit to join our army, but has also contributed by purchasing a product at my wife's store, which you can find on Facebook at Knittenfrog. As such, Anna shall be known henceforward as Duchess Anna, of the sudden yet inevitable betrayal. The next patron worthy of honor and praise is Holmes, who shall be known now far and wide as High Marshal Holmes of the Nonfiction Section. The last of our patrons this month 
coming in just in the nick of time, is Sean. And he shall be known henceforward as Baron Sean of the Antiquated Haberdashery. Turning our attention now to those who have made secure donations via PayPal, which you can find at the website, in the store page, we find Brittany, who has chosen to sail the seas as part of our retinue. She shall be known henceforward as Admiral Brittany, the somewhat alarming pirate queen. Patron Sir Patrick Comfychair, the younger, chose to donate to help us in our time of need, and so he has attained an additional office. He shall be known as Sir Patrick Comfychair the Younger, Marcher Lord of the Royal Den. Sir Dan Teabringer has also seen fit to donate once again, and so shall be known now as Sir Dan Teabringer Oolong Shanks. Our next donor was one of the old guard of donors, David Frosthollow, Viscount of Minneapolis. David's generosity has earned him new titles and honorifics. He shall now be known as Viscount David Frosthollow of the Iron Range, champion of the Hot Dish Plains. Triggs the Mighty has again sent forces in our time of need, and so she shall be known henceforward as Triggs the Mighty, buttress of the Royal Sleeping Bag. Donor Benjamin has also sent aid, and he shall be known henceforward as Alderman Benjamin, boss of the Aglet Quarter. Next up is old friend David Von Weaselballs. He has seen fit to raise one of his disgusting, crawling serfs to a more refined status. As a result of the intercession of Lord Weaselballs, his man Dwight shall be known henceforward as Burgomeister Dwight of New Weaselballs Heights. Dwight, may you serve your lord with honor or face a fate far worse than death. Thank you so, so, so much to all of our donors and patrons. Your generosity has made a huge difference. We're almost there. This may be the last time you hear me talk about the house other than to say, yay, we did it, but we, we may have one more. But keep, keep on it, guys. We're almost there. Thank you so much. Men, there are, who call our modern soldiery mere bowmen and can praise only the troops of old, the shielded legionaries who fought hand-to-hand -hand with the foe. They lament that our ancient warlike courage has disappeared in these days, and thereby show themselves to be mere ignorant civilians. Quote from the works of Procopius, as presented by Sir Charles Oman in The Art of War in the Middle Ages, as read by the excellent Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 38, Warfare in the Middle Ages, part 1. Last time out, we discussed the life of Mark Bloch as a way to celebrate the annual Potiversary. Before that, we had discussed the origins of the nobility in the Middle Ages. Today we will actually be combining both these themes as we delve into a topic near and dear to my heart, the peculiar social institution of warfare as practiced in the Middle Ages. As with, I suspect, many of you, military history was how I got into history. 
My grandfather had served in World War II, and little six-year-old me tested out his new reading skills, hoovering up every book on the subject I could find in the library. In all honesty, books about war were basically the only thing that could hold my interest, and it was unclear for a while whether I would even learn to read because of how uninterested I was in reading, so finding military history was a really big deal. By the time I was ten, while other kids were reading the Goosebumps books or books by Roald Dahl, for me it was either military history or the Redwall series, a group of fantasy novels about anthropomorphic animals who run around hitting each other with swords. However, I am no longer ten, and as I have gotten older my understanding of warfare has definitively evolved. Needless to say, the me of today views the reality of warfare with horror. There's probably no human activity that so twists what it is we value about ourselves, no activity which is more wasteful of resources, our environment, and our potential as individuals, as warfare. And yet, and of course, the excitement of war stories is deeply ingrained in my psyche, as it is in Western society in general. Whether this is an evolutionary or a cultural trait is probably impossible to separate, yet the fact remains, war is interesting, and you can tell this by looking at any genre of popular cultural production. From the blockbuster superhero of the big screen to the fantasy epics of television, violent conflict, its terminology, and its narratives color almost every aspect of our society. This is despite our being in an era of unprecedented peace. Within the history genre itself, the phenomenon can be observed by going into any bookstore or library. The history section will be chock-a-block with memoirs of former soldiers, books about Hitler, and alternative history stories about how the world would change if this or that war had gone differently. For me, for many years, this actually became a reason to avoid military history. After reading one too many barely literate books that indulged in masculine fantasies about fighting in Vietnam, without any recognition about the consequences, I was turned off from the entire genre. I began to demand more from my history, more analysis, an understanding of the place of events in a wider context, and the impact of these events on people in our collective past that always seemed to be off-screen in the self-glorifying tales of men with guns. And like Marc Bloch, I found that I wanted history to tell me something about the human condition, something we could use to make our lives better. Military history did not seem to offer this, and became at best a guilty pleasure I indulged with the same part of my brain that I used to read Tolkien and watch Star Wars. As I referenced very briefly in the last episode, the entire discipline of history went through a similar process, though maybe without the anthropomorphic warrior mice. For many years, the goal of writing history was as much the telling of exciting stories as it was in illuminating the past. Even as the Renaissance turned to the Enlightenment, history as a genre could easily be confused for a collection of old war stories. To his credit, Rank and the German empiricists began to move away from this. Their interest was in high politics and history, and so the swashbuckling tales of old battles was gradually de-emphasized. But for those who addressed warfare, the subject remained inextricably bound with the big, exciting battles and campaigns. As time went on, academic historians felt less and less competent to engage in this kind of storytelling, even as their desire to do so was lessened by changes in the discipline. And so the genre was taken up by the military schools, many of which were either founded or came into their greatness at this time. The theorists of these institutions were focused on teaching their pupils how to win wars, and at this time in history it was simply assumed that the only way to win a war was to win a battle. The great theorist of this view was Clausewitz, 
a Prussian veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, who wrote the book used by the Prussian Staff College as one of its major handbooks. As the Prussian Staff College would go on to dominate European land warfare from 1870 onward, this became the book to go to for most European military colleges. Clausewitz's major work, on war was widely understood to argue for conventional battles fought as part of mobile campaigns which were based on lessons drawn from historical events, regardless of the equipment involved. Writings on military history became more analytic in nature, but they focused on analyzing the movements, the troop types, the organization, and the weapons used to find victory. For academic historians, these arguments underlined their view that military history was a separate venture. Since, as Clausewitz argued, changes in technology did not change the basic rules of warfare, it could be assumed that the rules of the military, the rules of the military sphere as a whole, happened in a sphere that was separate or tangential to events happening in the rest of history. This is not to say that warfare didn't matter. Of course it had a big impact on the high politics of the historicists, but how it happened didn't really matter. Think of it this way. A great statesman like Bismarck may engage in furious diplomacy, political intrigue, all with the purpose of having his state wage a successful war. For the historicists, this was the topic of their conversation. Then the war happens, and either it goes well or it doesn't. And then there are ramifications, for example, the eclipse of France and the unification of Germany. The war itself is kind of a black box, important but unexamined. To at least a certain extent, this remains the relationship between mainstream academic history and military history right down to the present time. Mainstream historians do not want to get involved, either because they view the study as beyond their ken, or because they view it as a pursuit best left to military practitioners, or, less charitably, to bored vainglorious man-children seeking escape from their suburban office jobs. That said, it cannot be ignored that the military has had an impact on society and history, and so gradually, over time, military history has begun to get more and more attention from serious historians. Giving hard dates for this process is difficult, because we are discussing the history of ideas, but possibly as early as 1918 it had become clear that military history could not be treated as entirely separate from wider social contexts. On the side of the military practitioners, figures like T.E. Lawrence began poking major holes in the conventional view of what warfare was. If, as Clausewitz suggested, warfare was the continuation of policy by special means, why should warfare be a practice completely restricted to set-piece battles being fought by conventional armies as part of normal campaigns? Lawrence advocated the use of irregular warfare to undermine the ability of armies to function and sap states of their will to make war. In the revulsion that followed the slaughter of World War I, these ideas found eager receptions, and military theorists in Europe began seeking new ways of approaching war. In the interwar period, the most popular approaches would come to embrace things like mobile warfare and total war, the former basing its ideas on the idea that technological changes did have an impact on the way war was waged, while the latter focused on the importance of mobilizing an entire society and economy to provide for the material needs of war. In both cases, the theories explicitly rejected elements of Clausewitz, and sought to break the study of military affairs out of the box it had been placed in for much of the 19th century. These theories met their test in the Second World War, for better or for worse. Speaking charitably, these ideas proved much more successful at predicting events in the Second World War, and did allow military leaders to find success. 
On the flip side, they justified slaughter, and particularly a slaughter of civilians, on a scale hitherto unimagined. It was in the light of this slaughter, in the post-war period, that the wall between military and conventional history was attacked from the academic side. As we discussed last episode, the conservative elements of European society were, at least intellectually, entirely discredited by the events of the war. From a historical point of view, the new consensus was in the Annals School, which focused on topics of social significance that went beyond the big history narratives of politics and statecraft. While most historians continued to view military history as an inappropriate topic, the new, wider writ of the Annals School made the study of military history somewhat justifiable to a new generation of historians. For these younger men, many of whom were veterans of the World Wars, it was clear that there was an intimate connection between militaries and the wider societies of which they were a part. Furthermore, it was clear that the study of these topics could no longer simply be left to the military men who had overseen the devastation of the European continent. One such historian was Michael Roberts, a veteran of the South African Army and professor in the decidedly non-military Queen's University, Belfast. In 1955, he published a paper called The Military Revolution, 1560 to 1660. The military revolution theory will be an important topic of discussion for our podcast, because Dr. Roberts happened to be a specialist in Swedish history, and so his theory focuses on the rise of the Swedish military system during the wars of the Reformation. I will go into this more at a more appropriate time in the narrative, but his basic argument was that changes in technology during the period made armies more expensive, which forced the monarchies of the time to centralize their administration, which caused these medieval political entities to coalesce into the first European states in a modern sense. His theory has significant pluses and minuses, but for our purposes today, the idea was revolutionary for one fairly specific reason. Roberts had possibly unintentionally, made the point to his peers that military matters had an actual impact on society beyond the ravages of war itself. The logistical processes used to support the armies, the cultural factors that went into justifying military action, the impacts of war on civilians and the economy, these were all vital things to understand in history. This has led to a massive reevaluation of the role of the military in society in all times and places, not just in the early modern period, and this work is vital and ongoing. The Middle Ages are no exception, and in fact the discussions that have built up around this era represent a key piece of foreshadowing to the discussions we will be having later in the narrative about the military in the early modern era. The rest of this episode will be spent in examining the theories that have been built up around this era of military history, and the next episode will be spent in trying to elaborate those theories into a somewhat realistic picture of how the military functioned in the Middle Ages and the impacts that that had on society. For reasons that will become clear later, I'm going to cut this discussion at the year 1300 and leave a discussion of the military in the High and Late Middle Ages for a future episode on the military in the Renaissance. Sound good? Okay. The work that forms the background for most modern theories of medieval military history is Lynn Townsend White Jr.'s Medieval Technology and Social Change. White's main theory was that the arrival of the stirrup into Europe in the 8th century had allowed Charlemagne's Frankish Empire to impose feudalism on Europe, a process continued by Charlemagne's successor states. While some elements of this, such as the link between feudalism and the Carolingian Empire, 
may be familiar to listeners of this show, you will note that I have assiduously avoided the S-word thus far in my show. White does still have supporters, but his theory suffers from two fatal flaws. First, philosophically, it flirts dangerously with technological determinism. The stirrup did not by itself do anything without wider cultural forces. It is just a thing. Second, the chronology White relies upon is almost certainly wrong. Why it is wrong is complicated, but for the sake of clarity, let's break it into two topics. Issues with the historical evidence, and issues with the importance of the stirrup to mounted armored warfare. In terms of the evidence, stirrups are hard to trace in the archaeological record. They are likely to be made from perishable materials, and so the stirrups themselves are often hard to find archaeologically. The documentary record is similarly spotty, but what exists may actually contradict White's theory. For example, the first written evidence may be in the Byzantine military manual, the Strategicon, which may date to as early as 575, or possibly as late as the 9th century. So potentially, the stirrup would have arrived in Europe much earlier than indicated by White, in which case the birth of the cataphracts might argue against the uniqueness of the Western knight. But then again, the evidence might show the stirrup arriving much later. The story is similarly vague and contradictory in other documentary evidence, and the sources used by White end up being extremely contradictory. In terms of the value of the stirrup to warfare, White argued that the stirrup allowed the horseman to couch the lance, thus transferring the entire shock of the charge to the spear tip. Conversely, a knight without a stirrup would have had difficulty controlling his horse, and would tend to wield his spear overhand. As a result, horsemen during the classical world were lightly armored and ineffective, leading to the focus on infantry armies. It was only after the stirrup arrived that a man on a horse could be expected to control the beast while wearing heavy armor, and then charge his attacks home. This theory is attractive, but basically ignores the entire history of cavalry and warfare, as well as the practicalities of combat. To the former point, we know that cavalry was important in warfare as early as the rise of the Sassanid Persian Empire, and Alexander the Great was famous for using his heavy-armored personal bodyguard to charge into weak points in battle with decisive effect. Modern experimentation has shown that armored horsemen would be well able to control their mounts with the saddles of the pre-stirrup era, though they probably did not wield the couched lance, so that much at least of White's theory is potentially true. In terms of the practicalities of combat, the advantages conferred by the couched lance are probably extant, but not exactly revolutionary. Horses, being herd animals and herbivores, will just not charge into packed bodies of men, particularly if the men are armed with pointy things. And so a knight charging with a couched lance would not exactly be trying to break a shield wall using brute force. Instead, the horseman would be trying to break into an already opened gap in the line and then widen it. The couched lance would make this easier and more effective, but the couched lance would not allow the horseman to beat a disciplined force of infantry all by itself. Conversely, a armored horseman operating with a uncouched lance would still be able to get into gaps and exploit weaknesses. This is seen in the historical record. The early Middle Ages are full of examples of battles where disciplined infantry forces stood up to cavalry successfully, from the Battle of Tours to the Battle of Hastings. While the infantry ultimately lost the latter example, it was only after a gap was opened in the line, partly due to a tactical error and partly due to the use of archers by the attacking Normans. 
and the archers were infantry. Converse examples exist as well, of cavalry armies beating infantry formations before the arrival of the stirrup. To be sure, battles where disciplined infantry formations beat horsemen became more and more rare over the course of the early Middle Ages, but it's unclear whether this was because the cavalry got more effective as they adopted the stirrup, or, and I consider this more likely, as the available pool of disciplined infantrymen dried up. More about that in a second. What I should be clear about at this point is that there's ongoing debate about all of this. White still has some supporters, and how far you take the points I have made above is not completely agreed upon. Nonetheless, I'm fairly comfortable saying that the modern consensus amongst mainstream military historians is that armored cavalry existed before the stirrup, that they were always understood to have battlefield value, the stirrup arrived in Europe sometime in the early Middle Ages, we can't tell when, but it took generations for the horsemen of the time to fully incorporate it into the way they fought putting the full adoption of stirrup-type battle tactics well after the Carolingian Empire. Incidentally, it was probably the Knights of Normandy that first fully adopted the charge with the couched lance into their repertoire, some 200 years after Charlemagne. We see this from pictorial evidence. Even so, this pictorial evidence shows the use of the lance overhand as late as the Battle of Hastings. Needless to say, there can be no doubt of the battlefield value of the armored horsemen by that late date. Podcast footnote. I could say a lot more about this topic and a number of related popular errors of military chronology. I mean, don't even get me started about all the ridiculous stories about war chariots. War chariots? Okay, well, if you insist. Wait, no, wait! The standard story is that war chariots of the Near East were terrifying proto-tanks, and the only thing that could stop them was the development of the crossbow. But there is no documentary evidence, to my knowledge, of a chariot ever fighting an army equipped with the crossbow, at least not outside of China. The age of the war chariot in the West began to wane in the mid-Iron Age, around 1000 BCE, and the crossbow was not developed in Europe until at least... 399 BCE, many years after the wane of the chariot era, and even then it was only developed in Sicily, far to the west of the great chariot armies of the Fertile Crescent. Did the surviving charioteers of Mesopotamia just hear a rumor of the Greek crossbow and just pack it in? No, no, the entire idea is absurd. The issue is that, yes, chariots were super useful back in the Iron Age, but that was because the horses of the time were very small, probably the size of large deer. They were not big enough to carry a human. The potential to use them as draft animals was realized, and they were attached to carts. The nomads of the steppes who domesticated them used these carts in hunting and later in warfare, and they provided a great mobility advantage. But ultimately, we were talking about a ridiculously vulnerable, complicated, and expensive setup, with multiple horses needed to pull around this cart, usually with multiple fighting men aboard, give or take, depending on which army you're talking about. Plus, they didn't have ball bearings at this time. All carts before the Industrial Revolution were made with axles that rested directly on supports and were lubricated with grease. This was not efficient, and especially with heavy usage, the axles would wear out rapidly. And then in battle, all you have to do was kill one of the horses or even just cut the reins, and the chariot was useless. China had an entire class of pole weapons called dagger axes, whose main purpose, probably initially anyway, was cutting the reins of chariots. As we bred bigger and stronger horses, people eventually realized that you could just ride the damn things, and get all the advantages and none of the vulnerabilities of the chariot. 
So they just stopped buying chariots. Simple as that. In some places, chariot persisted because it had become a cultural thing. But in the West, anyway, it phased out as soon as people realized that they could rise horses. End podcast footnote. Underlying the issue of the Great Stirrup Debate, however, is a set of much more tricky questions and important questions which we have been dancing around ever since the end of the Walking Tour series. The central place of the armored horsemen in European feudalism is just not up for debate. It's been clear since historians started discussing the subject. The nobles of the Middle Ages, at least from 1300 onwards, probably as early as 1000, clearly identified themselves as knights. Their military role was central to their identity, even as the battlefield importance of knights began to wane towards the end of this period. What is up for discussion is the role that this military caste had in creating feudalism. The idea that the terrifying military effectiveness of horsemen led to the rise of feudalism predated White's work. The idea is essentially that the armored horsemen were just so effective on the battlefield that no other military system could stand against them and that feudalism arose as a way to support the material needs of this new military caste. Depending on who you read, this may have caused the fall of the Roman Empire to hordes of horse-mounted steppe warriors. Unfortunately, it was said, the absence of the vast grasses of the steppe land, or the taxation system of the empire, made it difficult to maintain the large cavalry armies needed by this new kind of warfare, and so feudalism developed. The vassalage system I described in the episodes on the nobility was a way to allow the maintenance of very expensive horse warriors, and out of this system developed the nobility as a military caste. This view was probably an inevitable conclusion to draw from the interrelationship of knights and nobles, and dates at least back to the historical writers of the Enlightenment. The Rankian historicists spelled out the idea and codified it, but it has been a long-held and somewhat unexamined aspect of how the West has understood the rise of feudalism for centuries. One of my favorite historians, Sir Charles Amon, did question it somewhat in his 1924 work, The Art of War in the Middle Ages, but did not push his questioning very far. Mark Bloch simply referred to the invulnerability of armored horsemen in warfare as an acknowledged fact and built his theories of the evolution of feudalism sort of around that assumption. Some elements of this narrative fall away very quickly, even under passing cross-examination. In terms of the idea that the horse warriors destroyed the Roman Empire, that's clearly false. Most of the Germanic tribes of the migration period fielded armies that were primarily infantry in nature, while the Romans adopted cavalry very early on, simply to allow the strategic flexibility to patrol their long borders. The Germanic successor states to the empire, including the Franks, retained a primarily infantry-focused military. Not that cavalry wasn't used, it was, it's just that these societies learned warfare from their time as Roman mercenaries, and so the militaries that they created wielded armored cavalry forces as strategic auxiliaries to an infantry-based core of the army. A slightly more convincing narrative tries to pin the rise of armored cavalry to the depredations of the Vikings, the Saracens, and the Magyars. The chronology works better here, and this is the version folded into Mark Bloch's work. Much work has gone into pinpointing the first king to begin this transition to cavalry warfare, but as we discussed in passing during the episodes on Otto I, every Frank since Charlemagne had recognized the value of armored cavalry. It isn't like the Vikings showed up and suddenly everyone realized that they needed to jump on a horse. The horses had always been there. 
Furthermore, detailed research into the records of the era have begun to suggest that the impact of various marauding outsiders may have been completely exaggerated in comparison with the impact of marauding nobility, whose internecine internal conflicts raged constantly across Europe as the central authority of the Carolingian state fell apart. It's actually these internecine conflicts which gave the Vikings, the Saracens, and Magyars room to intervene, rather than the other way around, where the depredations of the outsiders caused collapse and caused these internal conflicts to break out. Finally, it isn't like armored horsemen were some sort of unstoppable military juggernaut. I've already mentioned that the situation was quite the opposite. Disciplined infantry formations beat cavalry armies well into the Middle Ages, and even after cavalry became the central branch of the medieval military, there were these things called castles, which we will get into next time, but you can't kill them no matter how hard you stabbed them with your lance. It's not arguable that armored horsemen were a very important element of warfare in the Middle Ages. Entire battles were fought where the infantry did not even participate. But the fact is that most military encounters in the Middle Ages were not in the form of battles. Leaders of the time actually tried very hard to avoid pitched battles. Most military engagements were in fact either raids or sieges. In the latter, the horse was useless, and the knights proved very happy to dismount. As historians have looked at this problem and refined their models, some historians started suggesting something radical. You can take the sort of Mark Bloch vision of the evolution of feudal society, lift out the armored horsemen, and everything will still more or less hold together. The social dislocation that led to increasingly personal ties of dependency amongst the military classes predated the rise of armored cavalry. But then these personal ties of dependence don't need armored knights to exist, they just need people, fearful in a time of chaos, trying to find some security. And so an alternative narrative has begun to take hold that in some ways flips the traditional narrative on its head. To summarize, the military political classes of the post-Roman Germanic kingdoms used land redistribution in lieu of a salary to pay their officials. The ability of these officials to control the entire executive power of the government in their region accelerated and then completely undermined the ability of the central government to collect taxes and assemble military forces, to the point that the government was entirely reliant on these same military political officials to provide military force. This also caused what was left of the Roman economy to completely collapse, since everyone was raiding each other's uh, traders. With the government strapped for cash and reliant on the nobility for resources, the government could not stop the nobility from absorbing the small land holdings of the free peasantry, a process that we will discuss in future episodes. Unfortunately, the free peasantry made up the bulk of the infantry forces of the army. The impoverishment of the free peasantry left them incapable of serving as truly effective soldiers, again forcing the government into reliance on the nobles. These nobles had the resources to outfit themselves very expensively, but they got those resources from the land they held. Since the only way to get wealth out of the land was to keep the peasantry on it and working as much as possible, manpower was at a premium. So the incentives of the nobility in medieval society was to hold down as much land as possible with as small a number of soldiers as possible. Armored horsemen were an easy solution to this problem. They were very mobile, so that they could patrol a very large territory, but they were well armored and trained, so that they were more likely to survive a battle. In this view, the decline in the number of infantry-based armies was not due to their waning value on the battlefield, but due to the fact that trained, well-equipped infantrymen were either not available, or were simply a bad investment given the needs of the day. 
since no one was out training or equipping infantry forces, since no one was out training or equipping infantry forces when they were assembled, they tended to do poorly on the battlefield. Even if you put a spear in the hands of a farmer, it doesn't make him a pikeman. One of the key lessons of military history is that warfare is a skill, like any other, and putting an amateur on the battlefield tends to make him a threat to himself and everyone around him. Given this new view of the rising medieval society, many historians now argue that the rise of the horsemen had nothing to do with battlefield experience and was simply a product of the economic, social, and cultural prerogatives of the time. I won't go quite this far. I would argue that, given the threats European society faced, armored horsemen would not have survived if they weren't effective. The Vikings, Saracens, and the hostile neighbors the nobility of the time faced would not have cared if the horsemen made more sense economically. Rather, I would say that the armored horsemen were one militarily effective answer to the problems faced on the battlefield out of many that could have been used. Given this assertion, you might want to see examples of situations where similar problems were faced and different solutions found. As it happens, Anglo-Saxon England presents such an example. Faced with widespread Viking raids, the Anglo-Saxons ended up utilizing the Burr system, whereby England was encrusted with fortified garrison towns, paid for with taxes, and manned by an army of citizen soldiers. Most importantly, it was an infantry-based system. It isn't that the English didn't have horses. They loved horses, and sometimes they rode them towards battle. But at the point of the engagement, they would dismount and join with the local forces that didn't have access to horses. The big difference was that Anglo-Saxon society was much more centralized than Frankish society, and the free peasants were under much less pressure. They were still under pressure, but they still existed as a class in a way that they didn't in Frankish lands. As a result, the government was able to call upon a large force of free peasants to serve in their army, peasants who could equip themselves and train each other during their regular service in the garrisons. Of course, all this was wiped away by the Norman Conquest, and so England became a feudal, armored horseman-based society like the rest of Europe by 1070. Still, this example shows that armored horsemen weren't the only solution to the Viking problem. It was the interplay between military effectiveness and social pressure that resulted in the predominance of the armored horsemen. As a result, we cannot say that the armored horsemen created feudalism, but we also cannot say that feudalism created the armored horsemen. It would be more accurate to say that the armored horsemen and the feudal system co-evolved in the chaotic environment of the early Middle Ages. Today we discuss the relationship between military history and mainstream history, and how the rise of the military revolution theory has led to major reevaluations of the relationship between the military and the rest of society in history. Lynn Townsend White Jr.'s Medieval Technology and Social Change opened the conversation for medieval history with a now discredited theory about the importance of stirrups, but most of the debate in the post-war period has focused on the role of armored horsemen in creating feudalism. Initially, it was assumed that armored horsemen were simply so effective that they dominated the battlefield, and society was forced into feudalism in order to supply their material needs. This thesis has now mostly been abandoned in favor of a view where the knight and the feudal age co-evolved in a context of social collapse and increasingly important ties of personal dependence. This new thesis is not neat and tidy, and it's not a simple soundbite. Personally, I would not want it to be. Has life ever really been that way? Fairy tales are fun. I love fantasy stories, but I'm no longer 10 years old. I like to keep the anthropomorphic mice out of my history. Thank you very much. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. 
remember to rate and review the show on iTunes, and feel free to stop by and say hi on the social medias. Please remember to look up my wife's knitting business, Knittin' Frog, on Facebook and Instagram. Listeners get 10% off, and people with snarky regnal names get 15% off. See you next month as we expand on the theoretical discussions of today's episode and delve into what the military of the Middle Ages was actually like. Here's a hint, it wasn't just armored horsemen. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.